0: Welcome to BizPod.ninja, your central hub for business wisdom from rockstar entrepreneurs, CEOs, VCs, corporate development gurus, and more. Join us weekly for Truths from the Trenches with your host and business ninja, Andreas Pena. It is October 29th, 2020. The week before a very important election. So it's a, it's a, it's a special moment in time. And I have a special guest for this moment in time. We've got Charlie Newark French on the, on the show. How are you, Charlie? Very good, Andreas. How are you doing? Doing well. You're in, where are you right now? New York? Yeah. I'm in uh, Chelsea, Manhattan,
1: but uh, I'm looking forward to being on this, this discussion with you. I've watched, watched a lot of these by now.
0: Oh, amazing! Well, thank you very much for supporting the show and being uh, being part of that. Uh, how have you been holding up? How are things? It looks like there's another spike coming down.
1: Yeah, you know, I think Manhattan's still doing uh, um, okay. It was uh, took a took a sort of uh, a beating at the beginning of March. Obviously, the first uh, couple of months here were just total extreme lockdown. I think you had a little bit of it over on the West Coast, but not quite as bad as we had it here. At the moment, numbers seem to be okay. Indoor dining, outdoor dining is open. So it seems livable, but we'll see where see where it heads over the next couple of months.
0: Do you go to the office at all or are you mostly working from home? No, you- we've
1: moved, uh, Hyperscience has moved entirely remote at this point. And for us, it was a relatively easy transition. Look, it's it, being in person always beats being on a sort of a series of video calls, but most of our work can be done remotely. Most of our sort of coding, most of our enabling customers, most of our selling, So we found the transition somewhat easier than I than I would have betted we'd made it if you'd asked me in February.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of I'm seeing a lot of companies doing the same thing, and I think Mike Microsoft made an announcement if I read correctly earlier this week or maybe it was last week that they're now offering like permanent remote work for employees who want to. Some there's like it's like a trend that's happening now.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens coming out of this. My my thoughts are broadly that it will always be better to have in-person meetings than remote but increasingly our ability to do remote meetings effectively and to work remotely is just going to get better and better and this has forced us to sort of accelerate five to ten years into the future of where i think we would have ended up anyway so right. there'll be some benefits coming out of these crazy
0: times yeah i've been preparing for eight years for this moment because i've been doing <laughs> work for eight years so. <laughs> and i'm like true. oh now everyone realizes They're like how did you do it before they were like oh yeah. you can't be productive now Yeah, it's interesting. So, great to have you. I'm going to read your bio. Charlie Newark French is the COO at HyperScience. Disclaimer, I'm also an investor. The company just raised an $80 million Series D with Tiger Global Management and Bond. HyperScience modernizes mission-critical processes and operations for global 2000 organizations and governments. Previously, Charlie was an investment partner at Fusion Global Capital, a growth stage VC fund focused on enterprise software. He began investing in the venture space in 2012. Notable investments include RingCentral, which IPO'd, The Trade Desk, which also IPO'd, VeloCloud, which is now part of that was an M&A track, transaction, right? VeloCloud? Cloud, yeah, VMware. Um, yep. Yeah. Instant Logic to to Intel. No, I'm sorry. Instant Logic and Barefoot Networks to Intel. Yes. In 2012, Charlie was president of Fuse, a 120-person video conferencing software startup where he helped scale the organization and led the company through its M&A by Thinking Phones. Charlie began his career in London, that's where we met, with McKinsey & Company before moving to Vodafone. Charlie and I actually I had the great experience of being on the same team. We worked together at Vodafone in London and it wasn't always no, we were together. We were together, what, for a year there, like 14 years ago now. A long time those ago. Were good, those were good days. We used to tell people we were uh, playing you know, tennis as well, but both it was in real life, but also on the video game <laughs> on the corporate office floor for for breaks. Those were good times. Charlie holds an MBA from Harvard Business School and a BA in Economics and Management from Oxford, from University of Oxford. Thank you. That's a pretty impressive background, Charlie. I've known you since the start a very, you know, pretty much close to the start of your career. You've definitely evolved and you've got a host of experiences and skills that you've attained, and I'm really impressed and I'm super proud of you. So Thank let's you discuss the elephant in the room. You just raised, I think it was announced around 10 days ago now, yes. hyper uh, hyperscience raised, raised a series D an $80 million raise. Tell me about that process and what makes you and the leadership team a successful fundraiser. I know you're a very successful fundraiser, so tell me about that process and and how you did it. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, look, I've seen fundraising from both sides, right? From the investor side, where I was sort of involved in in roughly 10 investments in that Series D, Series E, Series, sorry, C, D, and E stage. And then from the company side at Fuse and at Hyperscience. There's, I think at this point, by the time you get to a Series C, Series D stage uh, uh, startup or a company at that point, there's some pretty traditional ways you go about analyzing that company and i think if anything those that sort of framework has become more and more true in times of covid when mm-hmm. uh, a lot of companies are doing are either sort of struggling or doing better than perhaps they thought they would be at this time right some 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 industries have just accelerated while some have gone through some very tough times mm-hmm. but the frame the framework which i'll go through and i'll talk about it from, from hyperscience perspective yeah. is really around is there product market fit right this isn't a series a stage startup where you are still just like fascinating technology this could be interesting when applied to xyz you have to be a product market fit and i'll talk a little bit about what hyperscience does then i think you have to have a vision for the future right people are investing in something real but also where where are you heading what do, how do you want to change the way things are done and that's a very important thing Right. And then, no doubt, by the time you get to a Series D stage like the hyperscience, people are looking at financial metrics. And I'll walk through the sort of five very, very standard financial metrics that everyone mm-hmm. looks at, and those all have to be in good shape. And for hyperscience, we've managed to get all of those into uh, exceptional shape. And then the last thing is just the t- the team the people that you're bringing together, and I'll talk about some of our differentiators there. So from a product market fit perspective, what we do at Hyperscience is we help organizations that have to process an enormous amount of data do that. There's large banks that are processing mortgages or large banks that are paying out, sorry, onboarding people to to, to new bank accounts or insurance companies that are paying out insurance claims or, or issuing new insurance premiums. We also serve large government organizations. We serve large healthcare organizations. We serve business process outsourcers. Anytime there's just a ton of data coming into a company from outside, mm-hmm. from the likes of you or me, like just that, just an every, everyday end customer. We help get that data into the right place. That is a wildly, I'll speak about it later, I'm sure, but a wildly messy market today. Right. There are some investors, I'm sure you know a ton of them, Andreas, that invest in zero billion dollar markets. By the time you get to a Series D stage company, it better not be a $0 billion market. Uh, We think our our market with what we do actually today is a $60 billion market. And with the vision that we're sort of going after, we think it's a sort of potentially all the way up to half a trillion dollar market, just an enormous market of of highly fragmented and legacy technology. And then that brings me to the vision. What we do is we speed up these processes for end customers, right? I filed for a mortgage recently for this place, you're sort of left waiting for four to six weeks whilst all those numbers go through their various systems and people uh, crunch them. We right. speed that time up. My aim is to have banks or our aim is to have banks in five or 10 years time, being able to say large banks, being able to say, okay, this doesn't take six weeks to issue this. This takes one week, or this mm-hmm. doesn't take one week. This takes five minutes, right? That's really getting out of the future. And the second you get into that, it's a, a sort of radical TAM you're going after. And then on the financial side, people look at five things typically, and then they go a lot deeper, right? And every investor has their own framework. But ARR, where, where you are, we're a very traditional sort of entering series D stage startup. We don't reveal our revenue numbers, unfortunately. Growth, growth rates, that matters massively. We grew 3x from a um, revenue perspective last year, 10x from a usage perspective, those are sort of best in class growth rates yeah. right now, gross margin. We do talk about our gross margin and that talks that, that sort of talks to the value of the organization of the product you've built. We're in the sort of high 80% range, mm-hmm. the cost of acquiring customers. How much does it cost you to go and get this customer? We serve very large organizations. Our average deal size is about half a million dollar, half a million dollars. And then the last thing people look at is burn rate. Are you being efficient with how you're spending the capital you've raised? Right. We spent, we raised a previous round, which you were actually part of Andreas in earlier this year, which was a $60 million round. We'd only spent 10 of that, right? So we're spending capital in an exceedingly conservative rate. And the raise, the series D raise was really because we're just seeing a giant opportunity out there and it's time to go and make a, make a, a much bigger bet. And the last thing is really the team. And I think that we're differentiated from a team perspective in two regards. The first is we're a true ML company. ML first, every every time we can hire an exceptional ML engineer, we'll do everything we can to get that person. And then the other thing is the leadership team that we put together is highly about, experienced.
0: About engineers, so New yes. York, there's, there's a difference. I mean, there's different talent pools around the world. Now that you're remote, are you kind of choosing engineers from a global scale? Do you prefer to have them in, in, a, in a regional area like in New York or um, yes. how, how do you manage all the different talent pools?
1: Yeah, so we decided strategically before the sort of March Corona timeframe, that we yeah. were going to be a relatively remote team from an engineering perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. It is
1: massively hard to hire good engineering talent and, and and particularly good ML talent. If you do a search for machine learning engineer on LinkedIn or something like that, you're going to get 50,000 hits back. The actual number of true practitioners that know, uh, that are able to come in and plug in an enterprise software company that can really do what we need to do, is in the single-digit thousands, one, two, maybe 3,000 uh, people. Oh, my and we have to go wherever we can for that. Uh, right. So we have an engineering hub in, in Bulgaria. We're opening a hub in London. We're opening a hub in Toronto. Those two offices are already open. We have folks um, in New York. We have folks in San Jose. We have someone down in Brazil. We're, re- we're really looking anywhere for all forms of engineering talent.
0: Got it. Amazing, amazing. What would be the one piece of advice you'd give to folks listening I know you've closed these rounds incre- like incredibly quickly. You know, obviously I've been there with you on that and the last one, what is, how do you manage to create such high velocity in, in closing the funding rounds? What's, what's the secret sauce there for you?
1: Yeah. Two things. Firstly, the business has to be in good shape. It's going to be very hard if it's not right. So right. the first thing is just concentrate on the business. But then I, I would say, which our CEO does extremely well is. Fundraising isn't something you do once every two years or once every six months or or, or, or sort of uh, pull the whole company to, in a room and sort of say the next month is spent fundraising. You're effectively out um, speaking to the market, talking about what you do the whole time. And right. I think particularly in earlier stage startups, like when you're a seed stage Series A, staying in touch with the local market and just sort of yeah. saying, this is what we're working on. This is where we're heading. Not necessarily saying we're raising an $8 million Series A right
0: now. That that sort of staying in touch with investors really matters. You're kind of always consistently campaigning in some sort of fashion or some sort of way. And as exactly. you build the company, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. And that gets folks kind of ahead of the head of the ball when it does come to, to funding and you get to know investors a little bit more intimately beforehand to suss out their interests and character and a strategic alignment. Yeah, that's great. So, Charlie, you clearly are a corporate development master. How did you do the Fuse m Tell me about the process you did in general. What was like the main kind of um, key role you played in getting that that deal yeah. across the yeah. line? well, look, I'm definitely not a, uh, a corp dev master.
1: That's that's for sure. You and we leveraged you in a lot of uh, discussions we were having in a Fuse, and we're doing the same at HyperSign. So thank you for that. Look, I think the 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 thing here is is when you're a startup, you have a limited pool of resources of, of, of talent, of, of capital, you can't go out and do everything. So right. you use corp dev to allow you to do more faster, right? right? How can I integrate these two products and with two weeks work I've created a year of value? Or how can I take this uh, customer base and pay for referrals for deals and actually just massively accelerate sales? Yeah. So corp dev is there Primarily, no one's going to do MA initially. Sometimes you are, but that's not a great strategy. What you're going to do is to leverage something else that exists out there to massively speed up the rate at which you can scale from a product or a go to market perspective. And that's what happened at Fuse. We were talking to Thinking Phones, which at the time we were, I think, 120 people. They were probably six or 700 people. We did so video.
0: You guys were HQ'd in, in the Bay,
1: right? Yeah, so at the time, I think we were in the Bay Area at the same time, actually. Um, That's right. We had an office in- Thinking Phones
0: is is East Coast, Boston, right?
1: Exactly. So Fuse had an office in San Francisco and Menlo Park and a few other places across the world. And um, Thinking Phones was headquartered in uh, Boston. We did video. They did voice, right? They did voice over IP. They did cloud-based PBXs, which is where you route calls. It starts to get very complex, but most organizations have them. Our aim there was a product partnership. That's how the discussion started. And those discussions started with a, what if you could have sort of one collaboration app to rule them all? And Mm. I think that vision has played out substantially, right? You sort of see the functionality that Microsoft Teams has. That was what a lot of those discussions were envisioning back then. It started as a, let's do a product partnership. And I think as we got deeper and deeper, we thought the product partnership is actually just one single app.
0: does both. And at that
1: point it became an acquisition discussion. And I think that's a very natural way for acquisition discussions to emerge.
0: Yeah. It's always better to have it evolve into that than, or be approached versus versus the opposite selling it. Yeah, totally. Totally. I, I, I see that all the time in some of the M A work that I, that I've done, but they can be a longer road for, for partnership, but also probably, probably the best way because you get to know about each other. in in both capacities and see whether there's cultural fit, et cetera. You know, that, that reminds me. So given that you have that background at Fuse, I have to ask you a question. Why is zoom so freaking popular these days? It's like we've had Skype video we've had, there's been like, everyone thinks that like video over IP or video conferencing that zoom brought to market. So how, I don't know how they've been able to claim that, that kind of mindset. But like yeah. why, why is Zoom such a big deal compared to everything else that exists there? It's not like they created the category.
1: Yeah, look, I think they've done a, an exceptional job on the product and on the go-to-market side. I'll speak about that a little. The, the the first thing is this technology has existed for a while, but it was when when I sort of, in 2013, first invested in Fuse, video meetings were pretty miserable. If you got on a go-to-meeting or you got on uh, a WebEx, 50% yeah. of the time, the first five minutes of it, were just unpleasant and you were probably getting on a video meeting because it was a an important meeting it was a sell or it was a talk with a ceo or right. there's some reason that you're wanting to do video right nowadays video is just much more normal and you do it for every type of meeting but certainly sort of seven eight years ago it was it was you were doing it for critical meetings right. um, and if that doesn't work it's just it ruined the entire meeting yeah. so the thesis that I, I sort of had at that point was that the most important thing, which I think Zoom did an excellent job on delivering, is deliver a reliable product that actually works. And we didn't; there was no nobody in the market at that point that did that. I think over time that's going to evolve like into Skype video. No
0: one, I mean, I, I used to Skype video, folks. What was what was so difficult about getting on a Skype video call compared? Did like, you ever have any problems with Skype, where the sound cut out or
1: where yeah, someone couldn't could, work, could work out, out, the out their their video on? Or it was just bad solutions all, yeah. all around. Skype was not a good solution. I think Teams now, Microsoft Teams, is an exceptional solution. But we weren't there seven or eight years ago. My vision, uh, or what I think will happen in the future, is you'll have eventually more and more immersive experiences. Maybe some degree of virtual reality where a meeting like this doesn't feel like looking into a sort of tiny camera, uh, and you've got something a little bit more um, human, a better experience. But I think Zoom has done a great job of just building an extremely simple product that works every time. I rarely I use it daily, and I rarely have problems with it.
0: Yeah, uh, and I think I that was a that. tough
1: thing to actually do.
0: Yeah, well, with all your background and knowledge of Fuse, I mean, obviously, I can't challenge you on that. <laughs> that it's the difficulty and, and and the relative ease of of that's why they're so successful. A couple more questions. So, tell me about tell me a little bit more about just hyperscience in general. You're one of the first employees, growing with the company, you CEO. How is hyperscience changing the game? Because there's yeah. been there's been automation software companies out there in data automation and, and yeah. in the past and you do have competitors, but like, what is like the, the one angle of how you guys are changing?
1: Yeah, uh, well, look, I joined
0: at around 80 employees
1: and we're a little over 200 right now. By the end of the year, we'll be about 250. So, that, so the, the company by the time I joined had done a lot of the heavy lifting and we had an exceptional product in place and we've sort of iterated on that over the last and innovated from there over the last year and a half. What we do uh, really well is we take doc we take that exists often in what we refer to as human-readable formats. What to you and me might look like a document, an invoice, a insurance claim form, a form of employment verification or income verification. We take that and we get that data into the right place. We we find the data on documents and we and we get that into the right place. This helps speed up and lower the cost of processing things like insurance claims. Issuing new insurance uh, premiums, onboarding people to banks, issuing mortgages, any of those sort of what I refer to as data-heavy processes. Now, the current state is extremely messy. I refer to it as a bit of a Frankenstein's machine. It's the cobbling together of all these, it's really pretty pretty miserable, but the cobbling together of all these different legacy uh, software. And then you throw in like a little bit of very specific RPA or something like that to do a robotic process uh, automation to do something quite specific. And the vast majority of it is still manual. If you're to file for a mortgage, most of the work there is manual. And most of that work doesn't need to be manual. It's tough, but it's not impossible for machines to be doing that work. So we've applied a, we've taken a very different approach, which is a machine learning approach to sort of say, look, instead of applying a list of rules which pretty get pretty exponential pretty quickly there's mm-hmm. thousands of different rules all over the place for for the various parts of that workflow we're applying machine learning algorithms to it and what that requires is a intimate relationship between software and people as the machine learns more and more over time so we typically see for the work we do 80 percent automation out of the box and then that goes to 95 percent automation Right. What we're trying to, to do here is just radically speed up those processes overall. Mm-hmm. The, the sort of back office work that is uh, done by people should increasingly be done by software. And I think what, what we're going to do over the next sort of five to 20 years is go through a similar revolution that we went through in agriculture and manufacturing from an automation perspective, where right. you're going to have a massive shift uh, of work going from people to machines, in this case, software. Right. And the benefits of that to society will be enormous. These moments tend to be very impactful moments. If you're filing for an insurance claim for a, a small bump on your car, this can put you out of action for six or eight weeks. That can right. affect the way you get to work, where you drive your children okay. to school, or if you get rejected um, from a mortgage because of a pure clerical error, that can set you back five years in terms of the way you view your 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 financial position and the things you want to do. Right. So. The, the vision is just to massively speed this up and end up with better outcomes for the end society. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, well, you know me, I'm, I'm 100% in your camp behind you guys wanting you to deliver on that promise and totally, I'm a complete believer in it. There's a ton of automation that needs to occur. People think things are already automated, but they're not from uh, legacy software to even handwritten notes. Most people, many oh, forms yeah. of are still handwritten. And so being able yeah. to collate co- 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 all these things together and optimize it. It's just remarkable across absolutely even mortgages or banking, but like logistics uh, is another yeah. huge. Another look, huge...
1: The, the thing that I would say to that is, uh, no one has any idea of the, the the sort of mess that exists in large organizations behind the uh, scenes. But everyone has an idea of the the, the end pain, right? You've you, right. the second you've tried to onboard to a new bank, you're like, why is this taking three days? What's happening right now? Or filing for an insurance claim is, and you're just sitting and waiting to find out for weeks and then they ask you for another piece of information that you've already submitted. We we all see that something's wrong. And right. what's wrong is it's technology stack is 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 not there yet. Yeah.
0: Okay, we're at the tail end of the show. Thank you, Charlie. I have a few fun questions to ask you. Yeah. So you know, I know you like to go out in New York when pre COVID and frequent nice yeah. restaurants. Are you are you doing takeout? Are you cooking? What's your what's your yeah. repertoire right now?
1: For the first few months, I'd say for the first four months, heavy cooking. But now we're we're sort of eating out most evenings at this point. We wear our mask to the restaurant. We sit down at a table. But restaurants are back open in Manhattan. I don't know how long that will oh, last yeah. for, but, but they're, yeah. they're, they're pretty open right now.
0: Back to the good old days.
1: Yeah, no new restaurants. It's just the, the, the good old ones. And I'm sure you and I have been to uh, a few of them together.
0: That's right. How are you staying fit? running and I'm back to running. Oh, okay, uh, so when we were,
1: when we were both in the bay area, I was running a ton then doing sort of ultra marathons. I'm not back at that level yet, but I'm running probably 6 days a week at this point. It's really the only thing you can you can you you can do.
0: How do you define an ultra marathon what like what level or what benchmark is that? What threshold uh, an ultra marathon is anything over a marathon technically. Got it.
1: Yeah, so when we were both in San Francisco, I did the double, if you remember. Uh, the that, double uh, San Francisco.
0: So if I do a, so if I do a, a marathon and I do one foot over the marathon, uh, standard, I, I just did an ultra marathon. <laughs> you did it. Let's start with the yeah, marathon, Andreas. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to move up from quarter. Although last year I did cycle from Paris to Monaco over six days. Uh, with a little training, uh, I did do it fully. I did get injured a little bit and had to go on a, one of the support, buses for, for, for a small segment. But yeah, I, I right. think, uh, I think i am probably gonna be a better cyclist than a runner. <laughs> and yeah. any, what's, what are you, what's your favorite Netflix or streaming show, or do you even have time to watch anything?
1: Not a huge Netflix or TV person. I did watch the Borat movie this weekend, which I would recommend, but nowhere near as much as I would recommend the first one. Just going back and watching the first one, is, which I actually did accidentally for 10 minutes before realizing I was watching the, the old one. I was like, these jokes are all the same. The first one was much better, but it's worth a watch if you've, if you've got an hour
0: and a half. I did. I did watch that. Well, thank you very much for joining the show. Everyone, we have Charlie Newark-French, the COO of HyperScience. You have an incredible career, track record, Charlie. Keep on the good work. Keep the good fight. And thank you for um, all that wisdom and insights across uh, your career and how you handle corp dev and transactions and management at HyperScience today.
1: Awesome, Andreas. Thanks for having me on Corp Dev Ninja. I'm enjoying watching these. It's great to have been part of one.